You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Nicholas Butler on the show with me. He has an amazing new book. It's called Godspeed, and this is one of those books that you you really don't know what to expect when you're going in. Um and when you're done, you know, you just sit there because it just it it, it just kind of seeps into to to your uh, to your whole being. And I, I love this book so much. There's so much going on in here and I can't wait to talk about it today. Welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Nicholas, we begin each show with the same question. And that question is. What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Whoa. Yeah, good question. Well, <laughs> I, I tell you what, I'm going to pay homage to all the great public school teachers I had growing up here in, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and uh, uh, in particular, a teacher that meant a lot to me who recently passed on, the great Doug Smith, who in the fifth grade uh, assigned us all a year-long project where we had to write a uh, fictitious historical narrative of the westward migration across America. And uh, my piece grew to like 125 pages in length, uh, which still remains one of the longer things I've written. (laughs) And uh, and in the process of doing that uh, project, I learned about research. And I learned about endurance and I learned that, you know, most of writing is just having your butt in the chair and finishing the job. I remember when that school year wrapped up, it was spring, of course, baseball season. I did not want to be inside, you know, handwriting a narrative. And it was my mom who, you know, made me sit at the kitchen counter and finish it, finish it off. And at the time, I thought that was uh, punishment. And now I realize that that was really uh, practice for for where I am, you know, at this point in my life. So, well, those were some epic lessons to learn in the fifth grade. Uh, there are lots of writers that spend the majority of their career coming to those same conclusions that that uh, you know that you had this gift handed to you in the fifth grade. That is amazing. It is amazing, and I, you know. Again, my my teacher, Doug Smith, passed away recently, and and he was a really special guy. And one of the things that made him special as an educator is that he did not, he refused to underestimate kids. He always felt that kids were up to the challenge and more mature than people gave them credit for. And, you know, when I have beers with, with uh, former classmates of mine from that from that fifth grade year, we talk about the reading list that we had, which was, and I say reading list, I mean, what did Doug Smith read to us as fifth graders after lunch? <laughs> and it was crazy. It was Ivanhoe and the old man in the sea and, you know, complicated texts that really would be on a college reading list. Um, 
But he didn't think like that that was too complicated for us. He didn't just hand us kids books or what would now be considered YA books. You know, he, he was like, no, you can handle this story. Um, and that's kind of, I, I don't know. I, I love that, appreciate that. And I give so much credit to the teachers that I had growing up here. They, they challenged me and they let me be the person that I was going to be. And they sort of gave me the tools to, to get there. My oldest son uh, is a sixth grade English teacher, and his soon-to-be wife, they're getting married in, in a couple of months, is also an elementary school teacher. So there's a, a, a very soft spot in my heart for uh, for school teachers, especially, you know, public school teachers and, yep. and, and folks that are just, you know, in the trenches making it happen and – and 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 giving kids the gift of taking them seriously, you know, as you know, as, as Mr. Smith did for you reading Ivanhoe and the old man of the sea. That is uh, that I think that that may be the biggest gift is is taking kids seriously and 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 showing them that that not only can they believe in their themselves, but that you believe in them. And that's what a fantastic gift. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Public school teachers are amongst my heroes. You know, nobody gets in fortune and glory and you know especially in these in these past 18 to 24 months you just see these these folks are you know they're battling and uh, and everything in our society has been shaken up and and they're sort of left holding the bag you know trying yeah. to keep educating kids in this time no one's really prepared for what's going on and i can't imagine if you know i I, I take COVID seriously, but I, I've also, uh, for complicated reasons, had to kind of continue living my life. But if I was an inst- uh, uh, an educator and I was, you know, had underlying health concerns and still had to go to my job and be surrounded by 25 or 30 kids, because, of course, in this country, we have tons of overcrowded classrooms because we don't value education as much as we, we should. Like, sure. my God, those those people. what what bonafide heroes they are <laughs> absolutely and uh i you know i didn't plan for this to uh, uh you know to be an an ode to uh school teachers but there you are and thank you uh, all for doing the jobs that you're doing yeah yeah so so nicholas from that time in fifth grade um that you know you had this uh, kind of storytelling thing awakened in you um, did you did you then you know set out on a path that this was going to be something that you pursued, or you know was it kind of like a lot of us do where you, you get busy doing the things of life and you know getting a job and starting a family and all that sort of stuff and then writing kind of comes back around to you. What what was your path like? Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up you know middle class in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and and um, that was a great childhood, as I've already said. Um, but you know, one thing about that childhood is that there weren't really great uh, templates for how to have a a career as a artist. At least right. I I wasn't aware of that locally. Well, especially you know, okay. before the internet, you know, when, right. when you couldn't just look up, you know, what someone's been doing their whole life. Agreed. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it also like, I'm not sure where you live exactly, but like for, for me here in the Midwest, like it was okay to say that you wanted to be uh, a doctor or a teacher or an attorney. But like, if I told people that I wanted to be a writer, I think they, I honestly think they would have laughed at me. Um, 
and that sort of um, feeling, you know, I had that feeling until I was probably 28, 29 years old when I got accepted to the Iowa Writers Workshop, because that was the first moment, even though I'd been publishing, you know, little bits here and there, poetry and, and journalism, um, that was the moment where I finally felt confident enough at, I think, 29 years of age to say, look, I got accepted to this school. And you can go to your bookshelf and pull down, what, 30, 40% of the titles on your shelf, and, and there's going to be some connection to the Iowa Writers Workshop. That was the moment where things began to crystallize for me, and I began picking up momentum as a, a writer. But but I had been writing all that time before it. I just, uh, you know, it, it hadn't really it hadn't really fully been realized, you know? Nicholas, um, what sort of writer did you envision yourself to be? Um, you know, Godspeed is a very, um, it's a very particular kind of book and, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but, um, did you envision yourself as, as a certain type of storyteller? Did you think of yourself in terms of genre and, you know, that and, and a lot of those things are kind of constructs for for how we navigate a bookstore, you know, where you go to find a book based on this or that and sometimes have a bearing on storytelling, sometimes not. But did you was there a certain type of story that really called to you? Uh, I think the quick answer to that is 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 no. And part of that is I've just been really. Well, look, I had no expectations. Um, well, it's more complicated than that. I had no expectations and I had the highest expectations. I, I worked really hard when I was at Iowa, uh, for complicated reasons that we probably don't have time to get into, but I, I had, you know, like my book shotgun love songs, my first book, which, uh, launched my career really in, in a great direction. You know, I think that's, a, a very literary novel that um is concerned with friendship and love and marriage and stuff like that and and that's the that's the only book that i could i could publish at that time or that i could write but i didn't think about genre or where i would fit into a bookshelf at all i just did the best that i could do at that time in my life and um was really fortunate with the outcome and since then, I've also been really fortunate. Like, uh, Godspeed is a departure for me, I guess, compared to my earlier books. But it was the story that I was like most interested in telling at that given time in my life. And um, and you're right. Like the genres that we uh, put on books tend to have more to do with marketing. Tend to have more to do with like. Hey, I'm looking for a good mystery. Where would I go in the bookstore to find that? But I've been fortunate enough in my career to not really think about those labels. And I don't know that that will always be true, Hank. It, it might not. But um, so far, I've just been able to kind of do what I want to do. If, if anything, I looked at a writer like Jim Harrison or Rick Bass or Thomas McGoin and I thought, or Annie Proulx and thought, that's what I want. I want to be able to live in a place that I care about that's sort of on the margins of America. And I want to just be left alone to do what I want to do. <laughs> well, as, as a lot of writers do. Um, 
speaking of that, um, I love to ask people about uh, how a sense of place uh, tends to seep into your writing in various ways. Um, I, I know you're you're from Wisconsin, and uh, but Godspeed takes place out west, and while um, they may seem like disparate, you know, places on the map, um, does does a sense of Wyoming and your the the place where you were raised does it work its way into your writing uh, that you can tell? I think the way that I'll answer that is to say that uh, when I when I got the idea for this book back in 2014, the the original idea, like the true story, the kernel of, of uh, like the seed of of Godspeed, was a story that I'd heard that was based in Wisconsin. But um, for purposes of, of telling the story within a novel, I think as a, as a novelist, you're looking for ways to up the ante, to amplify things. Um, sure. And so when I finally understood that it was set in Wyoming uh, and outside of Jackson Hole, that was important to me because I could, I could amplify the landscape. I could have mountains. I could have serious, uh, you know, mountain snow that would close down a road you know sort of like the overlook hotel and uh stephen king's the shining or something right. it, it, amp- it amplifies the ticking clock nature of the book um but the intellectual concerns behind the book are are just american you know the things that are happening within the real estate market the wealth disparity that's happening in america those things are happening in wisconsin Absolutely. And they're happening in Wyoming, Wyoming. They're happening in Florida and California and North Carolina. And uh, so that was important to me that the like emotional truth of the book was an American experience of what what's going on right now. You know, and it didn't really it wasn't necessarily specific to Wisconsin, but it is happening here, too. Authors. I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20 or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting 
at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process. The concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline. 12 beats and three acts. Each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off PlotPens. PlotPens.com Would you consider Godspeed to be a thriller? Yes. Yeah. To me, it's a... I would call it a literary thriller because I think it it pays attention to language on a molecular level. It it pays attention to character development in a way that I think is, uh, uh, you know, and I'm not disparaging uh, other books or anything like that uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But I think like there's something about a literary novel that pays attention to character development in a way that. Um, you know, maybe a very commercial book that that is only concerned with wouldn't. Uh, yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, you said something that that intrigued me just a second ago. You said that uh, that it pays attention to language on a molecular level. Um, reading Godspeed, uh, you know, there are some really interesting turns of phrases and and the way that you describe things. Um, it 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 seemed like there was a lot of care taken. In, in the way that uh, in the way that language is used, like you said, um, when when you're writing, do do does the the character of that language come out in a first draft? Uh, does do those things come out in editing? Um, you know, when you when you have your your ideas down in that that first draft, and you you've figured out how to get from point A to point Z and to tell a complete story. Do you yeah. then go back and and start looking at ways, different ways that you could say something or describe something? Where does that sense of language come into the story? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're hopeful that you you're you're building it organically as you go, and that sure. that it's you know that it's present in the first draft, but maybe not perfected. Um, I've been really lucky. I have a great agent named Rob McQuilkin who uh, works with a lot of the country's best poets. Uh, and comes from a family of poets. Um, and he has helped me through my career to push the language uh, word by word, to try to find, uh, you know, poetry in the prose. Um, 
And so I think in 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 subsequent drafts, I'm looking for ways to to make the language gallop, as my old teacher uh, Jim Galvin would say. I'm looking for ways to build a rhythm and a speed, especially in this book, into the language. Um, I've also been working a little bit over the past couple of years writing uh, nonfiction essays for my local newspaper, and that has uh, caused me to think about shrinking the language too. You know, so how do you how do you both make the language gallop? How do you build poetry into it? <laughs> but how do you also uh, approach a book in a in a conservative and I don't mean politically conservative way yeah. where you're you're not wasting words. You know what I mean? Well, and and you can have the most beautiful prose uh, in the world and you can uh, you know know how to turn a phrase and, and all of this sort of thing. But unless you have characters that the reader cares about, yeah. they're not going to want to stick with that all the way to the end because it it might be a great feat that you've accomplished. Um, but nobody's going to care about it if, <laughs> if there aren't characters that they care about. So yeah. tell me about Cole, Bart, and Teddy. Where did they come from? And, you know, you, you talked about the kernel of, of that idea a minute ago. What what was that initial spark that, that you know, set off this creative fire? Yeah, so, so back in 2014, we finished completion of the house where I'm talking to you from. And, th- and our house, by the way, is nothing like that. <laughs> The house described in the book Um, and a family friend of mine who works in construction stopped by to look at the house and he started talking to me about this multi-million dollar house not so far away that he'd been working on. And apparently they slipped behind the the homeowners, you know, perceived deadline and she got everybody on the crew together and offered them all a five figure bonus if they could finish the house in the next three weeks. And my buddy turned to me and he said, Nick, if we had all the meth in the world uh i'm not sure that we could have finished it in three weeks and i thought that seemed like a a good idea for a book and so then i began asking myself questions about the homeowner like well why does she have that deadline where did her money come from uh why is she building the house here and what if a construction crew accepted a challenge like that uh and what if they started slipping behind on that deadline and needed to resort to uh some different substances to stay up all night long to keep going um and you know when we were building our house i was here every day and i was talking to the uh guys on the crew many of whom had gone to the same high school i'd gone to and i was fascinated by their life stories many of them were you know pretty rough and tumble dudes um and were pretty open about their life's challenges with me and um and so, you know, True Triangle Construction uh, is the name of this fledgling company kind of a, at the heart of the the book. And it's comprised of uh, Teddy, Cole and Bart, their childhood friends. But they um, and they have different motivations for accepting this challenge and what they're going to do with their their big rewards. Um, but they also don't know everything about each other in the same way that you never know everything about even the people closest in your life. and. So Teddy's looking at it as a way to finally build, you know, buy a house in Jackson and establish his his family in this community where it's very difficult to find real estate that's affordable. Uh, Cole is kind of the business mind, and he's looking at it as a way to establish a name uh, and a trajectory for their company. And their buddy Bart uh, 
is kind of the loose cannon. He's had kind of a, a history of drug use. And uh, what his partners don't know is that his, his knees are just shot. And so he's looking at this uh, great reward as a way out. Um, and so part of the trick of the book is just like, you know, different, the four main characters here have different motivations, but they don't understand each other's motivations and they don't know each other's motivations. And so they're all sort of working towards the same goal. Um, and the clock is ticking uh, differently for each of them. Uh, and that was a, that was a fun, just a fun way to go about writing a book. Well, and you know, at, at the core, when you, when you really strip it down, what you have is a, a story, um, that's as old as time, you know, what would you sell your soul for that, you right. know, what it really comes down to it. Um, and, and there's, you know, and, you know, you found a, a great way to, to illustrate this in, in, in a real tangible way with real stakes. Um, yeah. What do you think, uh, you know, when you start thinking about this, you know, could you imagine yourself uh, in in one of these guys situation? You know, it's uh, it, you, and, and I think that's one of the great things about literature is that we get to explore other people's choices from the safety of our reading chair and and, yeah. you know, hopefully ask ourselves these questions. What What are some of the questions that you hope? people ask themselves when they're reading about these characters well i mean i i think the i think we have different conceptions no matter who you are as an american we have different conceptions of the american dream for some people it's it might be education or providing a better life for your children than you had um you know or a, a, the perfect job, whatever that may be. For me, growing up middle class uh, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, some of those aspects of the American dream seemed assured, right? I mean, like, I I didn't doubt that I was going to be able to go to college. I didn't doubt that I was going to have at least a middle life exist, uh, middle class existence. Um, but I think I think one thing that seemed like a challenge to me and part of my own personal american dream for better or worse was to to build a house it was like sort of um the manifestation of like a vision for my family's future okay well after we built the house i realized that you know after you attain your dream uh then what you know and and why was that my dream and was i any happier now that I had was dwelling in this house, um, and the answer was I, I wasn't happier. I was the same dude I was, <laughs> you know, when I was 25 and didn't have anything. Sure. Um, and I think, I think that's some of the questions that the book book asks. Like, why do you think this thing will make you happy? Why why are you unhappy? Um, why does a person need five houses? Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I that that's my hope. I think. Well, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where where you're from, or or Wyoming, where the book is set, or uh, South Mississippi, where I'm from, uh, these are rural places, or, or fairly rural in in uh, a lot of cases. Um, 
is this a story that that could only happen in rural America? Um, you, could a story like this happen with the same stakes in Manhattan? Well, I think I think it could, but I think I would be ill-equipped to tell that story. Um, yeah. I think uh, one through line throughout my books is is the importance of of nature and the environment. And um, I was interested in in you know uh, it might be cliche or old school, but I I like a good you know man versus uh, nature story, and there's mm-hmm. certainly an element of that here. Um, I, I you know I I just try to be true to my my interests and and where I come from, and that tends to be writing characters that live in rural Wisconsin uh, or or rural parts of the u.s and you know i'll leave the uh i'll leave the urbanity to uh to other writers and i'm happy to let them have it uh yeah i think it could have been but it would be a different book you know it wouldn't be it wouldn't be about weather it wouldn't be about snow it wouldn't be about winter it'd be some other uh threat and off the top of my head i i don't know what that would be right Nicholas, do you have a, a daily writing habit, uh, or are you, um, you know, a person that's more project focused? And and when when there's a deadline or a project you're working on, you're all in. And then, you know, uh, how do you handle kind of the the ongoing creative nature of a writer? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. You know, we've got two young kids, and so that that'll really. Uh, challenge the idea of a like a firm practice you know sure. like a a routine because how am i supposed to do that with two kids who uh <laughs> you know they need to get to practice and school and they need to be fed and they need to be parented and and also i look at the work of being a husband and a uh a dad as being more important than the writer so uh i try to write a book about every two years um I don't, I need to be on that deadline to, to know where my income's coming from, but I, I try not to force it too much. And, um, I, I just find, I write when I can. And, uh, and it seems to be working for me so far. Not, I don't have any, uh, any great wisdom when it comes to figuring out what that writing routine looks like. I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, it, it's working pretty well, I would think. Thank you. The new book is Godspeed. It is available everywhere now, Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. Uh, Nicholas, have you gotten to dig into the audiobook since it's been released? I haven't. I always feel so weird about the audiobooks. Like, what if somebody <laughs> ca- like, what if my wife were to catch me listening to my own audiobook? Would that that seems weird to me? But maybe not. Well, I, I've read the uh, the ARC, uh, the physical copy of it, and uh, I love the story so much. It, I kind of want to hear someone else tell me the story now, I think. I think I'm going to pick yeah. it up and, and, and listen to it. Um, the book is available everywhere now. We're going to put links to it in the show notes of this episode. Whatever format you prefer to read in, it's available. Or, uh, like I've been telling everyone lately, go visit your local bookstore and let's keep local bookstores going. Um, they're struggling just like the the rest of the world uh, has been and let's let's do something good for our local bookstores nicholas if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do where can they find you online yeah they can go to my website nicholasbutler.com 
They can find me on the gram at Wisco Butler. I'm just barely on Twitter, also at that handle, Wisco Butler, and I'm on Facebook. And uh, But I've been having the most fun with Instagram lately, so that's where I've been uh, probably most active. Instagram's definitely where all the good vibes are. I, I think so, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Nicholas, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of Godspeed. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, truly my pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks, Hank. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book 2, by Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole. Narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter 1. The Army of the Dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51, a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nano-plague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us, Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymores' sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that but there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. 
Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there. And I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the comm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some. Rotting boots. Helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts. Beads and charms dangling from bone wrists. Enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be. Where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical, yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.